welcome to Doing the Work, Frontline Stories of Social Change, where we bring you stories of real people working to address real issues. I am your host, Shimon Cohen. In this episode, I talk with Jewel Patterson, Edgar Ibarria, and Nicole Bates about their work organizing to end the school-to-prison pipeline in California. Jewel is a lead organizer with COPE, Congregations Organized for Prophetic Engagement, a Black-led, faith-based, grassroots nonprofit in the Inland Empire. Edgar is a senior lead organizer with Cadre, a parent-led organization in South L.A. Nicole is a movement lawyer with Call, the Collective for Liberatory Lawyering. They define the school-to-prison pipeline and explain how criminalization functions in schools, disproportionately affecting black and brown students and families. Jewel and Edgar share how they organize with students and families, as well as examples of the way students and families are impacted. Nicole discusses the legal issues and strategies that she and other call lawyers use to challenge and change legislation. We talk specifically about their work to change the law on the school discipline category called willful defiance, which is a vague term allowing suspensions and expulsions for, quote, disrupting school activities or otherwise willfully defying the authority of school staff, end quote. This change has resulted in fewer suspensions and expulsions in lower grades, yet it needs to be expanded to upper grades and high school, so the work continues. They discuss surveillance in schools, metal detectors, police in schools, the lack of counseling, and how they organize to change all of this and reimagine safety, including the victory of defunding school police $25 million and reinvesting that money in a black student achievement program. They explain how they build power, the importance of coalitions, movement lawyers, and some of the successes as well as challenges of their efforts. They cover so much and really break it down in ways that can provide a blueprint for others. I hope this conversation inspires you to action. Before we get into the interview, I want to let you all know about our episode sponsor, the University of Houston Graduate College of Social Work. First off, I want to thank them for sponsoring the podcast. UH has a phenomenal social work program that offers face-to-face master's and doctorate degrees, as well as an online and hybrid MSW. They offer one of the country's only political social work programs and an abolitionist-focused learning opportunity. Located in the heart of Houston, the program is guided by their bold vision to achieve racial, social, economic, and political justice local to global. In the classroom and through research, they are committed to challenging systems and reimagining ways to achieve justice and liberation. Go to www.uh.edu forward slash social work to learn more. And now, the interview. Thank you all so much for coming on Doing the Work. Nicole, Jewel, Edgar, really, really just happy to connect with you all. Got to give props to my friend Jordan Theory for making this connection happen because of his phenomenal advocacy and policy work on this issue. He's the one who connected me to all of you to get into a deeper dive on the really important work you do to end the school-to-prison pipeline in California. So just to start, could you each give a brief intro 
on who you are and what your organization does? I'll go. Okay. <laughs> Hello, everybody. My name is Edgar Ibarria. I'm a senior lead organizer at Cadre. Uh, we are a, a parent-led organization in South LA uh, for over uh, 20 years. Our work uh, is, uh, is focused around uh, leadership development and leadership advocacy uh, and all to uh, end the school to prison pipeline. Hey, everyone. My name is Jewel Patterson. I am a lead organizer with COPE. COPE stands for Congregations Organized for Prophetic Engagement. We were established in 2000, and our mission, in short, is to revitalize the communities in which we live, work, and worship. Um, We are a um, Black-led, faith-based, grassroots nonprofit in the Inland Empire in um, California, which is San Bernardino and Riverside Counties. Hey, folks. Um, my name is Nicole Bates, and I'm a movement lawyer at the Collective for Liberatory Lawyering, based out of South LA, um, but also doing some regional work in the Inland Empire and the Central Valley. And the Collective works collaboratively with within the movement ecosystem to dismantle the school-to-prison pipeline and create conditions for transformative education. We focus on interdisciplinary long-term monitoring of conditions in schools with a sharp focus on human rights of the most marginalized students and parents. Awesome. I'm so excited to have you all on here. The work you're doing is phenomenal, and I know folks are going to learn a lot from what you all have to say. So let's get into what is the school-to-prison pipeline so folks listening following the transcript can have a base understanding of it. Who wants to start? Okay, yeah, I can try it. Um, So I like to tell people, especially when I'm working with students, that first and foremost, it's not a physical pipeline. (laughs) Like, let's start there. Um, It's a set of laws that essentially ensure that students, particularly Black and Brown students, are funneled into like a metaphorical pipeline that leads them um, into basically having more interactions, unnecessary interactions with law enforcement. And then eventually those interactions can lead to juvenile hall, jails, prisons, things like that. Yeah, I, I would just add, yeah, it's, it's, it's that connection you know, between school and prison. And uh, sometimes uh, families can't see it, uh, but they experience it also just by what it's, it's surrounded to, like uh, it's the community violence, uh, low empl- or like lack of employment, uh, mass incarceration, you know, like poverty, like all these things also that surround the experience that also contribute to, to the school to prison pipeline. Yeah, and I think I would add that um, it's uh, like as Joel was explaining about the. Uh, the, the set of laws is that it's a really like the zero tolerance policies, right, that schools have where there's like no discretion and, um, you know, they like they don't take into account, right, like the context of the ways that young people are showing up, like Edgar was talking about all the community violence or poverty or, right, like these basic necessities that young people are not having that then they show up to schools and then are being harshly punished, disproportionately black and brown students, right? Disproportionately more than their white counterparts. Um, and then the additional presence of police on campus, right? Leads to this 
like Jill was saying, this like unnecessary <laughs> interaction and then surveillance and criminalization of young people uh, that then funnels them, right? Like we know that it when they're suspended and expelled, that means that they're more likely to fall behind in their schooling. We know that they're more likely to drop out, which means that they're if they're dropping out, then what are they doing, right? They're outside of school and more likely to have more interactions with police and end up in the juvenile justice system, which is a repetitive uh, process, right? Which means they're also more likely to be um, arrested and um, sent to, like, as adults, right? Like, it, it starts as juveniles, but it ends up to be this real funneling into the the criminal, uh, I don't even want to say justice system, but this criminal penal system. Yeah. And something that really strikes me with conversations around schools and education, right, is we're always told education is supposed to be this way out of poverty. Education is going to uplift people. Education is like social mobility. But number one, that's a myth in a lot of ways. But we've got these students in school trying to do what society is telling them to do, but they're facing this. They're facing this criminalization within the school. Yeah, mo most definitely. Uh, I think, you know, yeah, I, I was bought into the idea of like even going to higher education. And um, and when I decided to do that, like I most definitely didn't have the requirements or even the, the capacity to even you know, attend a class and, and especially a, even a community college and, and be ready to sit there and and listen and learn and then and so i felt like I, I was cheated even out of you know a degree that especially in high school like high school diploma that i feel like i didn't i didn't deserve because i wasn't ready like I, I i didn't feel prepared right and i and some of some of that's some of the things that i also um had conversations even with some of our our, our senior uh, uh, core parents about the kind of education the kind of education that they received whether it was actually you know, something that they thought was a quality and, and, and that's really what, what, what contributes to like the school to prison pipeline is the kind of quality of education that's, that's missing, uh, that helps people learn, uh, helps students, you know, understand, um, not only the grading, like, and, and, like, but also like growth. If there, if there's no actual growth of, 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 of that person, like, if, if they're teaching that person how to be, you know, uh, just a better human being. And, and that's some of the stuff that we, we touched on at Padre is really like, Yes, the, the grades are important. Learning most definitely of, uh, of math, uh, you know, arithmetic, uh, you know, science, and all that is, is, is important. Uh, but also, is the teachers, is the school important, uh, uh, invested in their actual growth? And and uh, that's something that's also missing within you know, our schools. Um, that that I believe it contributes to this this feeling of not being prepared uh, afterwards. Yeah, I think I would add that like. The education system is just a microcosm of our larger society, right? Steeped in white supremacy and racist ideals. And so, yeah, just like white supremacy and like America, <laughs> like and education works for the people that it's supposed to work for, right? So like we would say it's broken. It's not working for our babies, right? It's not working for our families, um, but it's doing what uh, it was created to do. And so I think what we stress is that um, we want to change 
school culture so that it's more positive, it's moving away from these harsh discipline practices and moving more towards, right, like um, having like a human rights lens. So like believing in the human dignity and respect of all students, no matter what they look like. Um, and so that's a lot of kind of what we push as we're talking about um, shifting um, school culture. What I think is important also to add to what y'all are saying and what we know, right, um, Edgar, in, in like doing this work, like students are feeling these things as well, right? Students are feeling this, like you're saying, this unpreparedness. Students are feeling this way of like, okay, hold on. It seems like there's something similar happening to me when I walk into a store that's also happening to me when I'm here on campus, right? And so students are feeling this kind of thing, even when they don't have that language to express it, they're still feeling these things. And so I think it's important when we're talking about like shifting how schools work for students to highlight the, their voices and help them like understand how they have the power to also change what they're seeing, what they're feeling on their campus. Yeah, yeah absolutely. So let's talk a little about how criminalization functions in schools, you know, like maybe some examples, you know, of situations you've heard of from the work you do and the larger ways it functions. I know we got into it a little, but just going a little deeper into it. Uh, criminalization starts with, with assumptions uh, and also just punitive, you know, uh, responses to something that could be addressed uh, by uh, conversation or, or Developing a, a better relationship with the, with the school. I mean, with the parents, uh, and uh, so what we see um, in, in uh, at least in our experiences, has been uh, how parents are put uh, against each other first, uh, and then it becomes this this uh, thing between uh, parents, uh, good parents and bad parents. Uh, parents that are in favor of some of the decisions that the school makes versus those that are being impacted, that are uh, feeling like they're being pushed, be uh, pushed, pushed out or pushed behind and not, not being included. Uh, and then it also shows up when those parents also that, that feel it and are trying to make a change also are either ostracized because of their, uh, how, how, because of their uh, advocacy and voice too. That it becomes also um, a feeling of powerlessness because um, if they say something, um, uh, for example, like one of our parents, Emilia, when she was uh, attending our uh, SWPBIS meetings, uh, school-wide positive behavior support meetings, which is our meetings that are uh, in LAUSD to help support, uh, create uh, interventions that, uh, for behavioral issues discuss, you know, how to become or how to create a, a better school climate, you know, through discussions and looking at data and, and uh, addressing uh, some of the, the issues that are happening, when they're happening, where they're happening, all that. So these are meetings that are intended to address um, and promote, you know, a positive school climate. And it's, But most of the time, these meetings are also held by parents that are very active or picked by the school. And um, to have a real conversation about these issues, especially about school climate, you have to have parents that are being impacted, that, that you have to have students and parents uh, who the school is talking about numerically, right, uh, through the data uh, to find out, like, how to create you know, a school climate. So 
when um, Emilia, you know, you know, was addressing, you know, what we're talking about something, but it's only a, a few staff here and and myself as a parent, like like we need to have more uh, black representation in this meeting. Uh, the the uh, I think it was the PSA that asked her, like, do you really want that? Like, I think that was the response. Like, do you really want that? Like, you know, by doing that, you are going to like limit your power as, as a parent, uh, limit your voice, and then so. Basically, she was. They were telling her, you know what? Uh, if you are, you know, if you start advocating that way, you're gonna lose any kind of power you have here because uh, you're no longer gonna be that parent that's, that that we're gonna look towards. And and she understood it. And and there were some consequences for her in that in that, uh, which was like some of the her her peers you know, uh, at school would, you know, tell her like why is she advocating this way, why is she asking you know for. Uh, you know, for black parents to be mean. You know, so there's also some also like like structural like like you know, anti blackness that goes on within our, our schools that that, that that creates this, right? Um but it was ultimately, you know, like a, a, a something to challenge because it was really you know it was it was fake power. It was it was tokenized power that, that the school was giving um parents and when it really came to agitating, changing uh, practices, they weren't really about that. And so I think that's one of the things that we find too in, 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 in schools when, especially now when they're adapting language that we are using in, in the community, like they're using it, but they don't really mean that because they really are talking about parent engagement or student engagement. Um, they have to be ready for that kind of agitation, that challenge of power that they're not going to be willing to give um, uh, the community because it's, it's really just was, um, it's just tokenized. That's what they're looking for. Um, I'm thinking of two things um, that help the school to prison pipeline function. Well, first I will say um, I kind of want to like walk through a scenario made up by like, right, many voices, but like, um, so I'm thinking of, let's imagine a student, um, they're missing school a lot because they're babysitting their siblings. And so they get pushed out of traditional schools into alternative schools, which look like bad schools. Right. Um, and so now that stereotype is on them that they're a bad student because they got kicked out of the traditional school and that they're maybe even like a criminal because most of the students they are around now at this alternative school are there for, you know, expulsion for any number of things. Um, they are now at this school where teachers are giving out and not only teachers, but administrators, right? Staff, um, they're giving out tough love because they, <laughs> that's what they feel like students need at this school. They need to just have a little bit of tough love and they'll get back on the right track. But that further disconnects the student from the school, right? And so then that student starts to feel like I don't have an out at home, right? And I don't have an out at school. They're frustrated. They have things that they want to talk about, but they don't have an outlet to talk about those spaces. People keep telling them to go to the academic counselor for to like express their emotions and the academic counselor doesn't have time for that. Right. Um, and then the student ends up taking it out 
in their work, right? Not necessarily in their grades all the time, but then maybe maybe it is, oh, I'm not doing well in this class because this one particular tough love teacher, I cannot stand. So I'm gonna cuss her out, actually. <laughs> I'm gonna cuss her out today because I don't have time for it. And then that cuss out ends up being like something that, right, Carl, y'all would tell us is like, disrupting school like you know not property or something like that now it gets written off as like something interesting like that um and now the student is labeled branded almost like okay this is a this is a criminal student we need to treat this student in such a manner now right and we need to be harder on this student give them harsher punishment we need to do this do that do that and really all that's happening in the student's world is almost the walls are coming in and in and in right and in the school it's almost like a feeling of what well, we have to keep on doing it so that this student can start to get on the on the right track. And that's how I see a lot of times the school to prison pipeline functions. It functions through like tough love. It functions through this like I'm not stopping to actually ask you a question about what's going on with you. Why did you blow up in class like that? How can we help you out? Um, what's your story? Who are you? We're not asking those questions. And a lot of times schools don't even have like um, the mental health and mental wellness spaces for students to even like sit to think about it themselves. Right. And so um, that's how I see it function a lot. And particularly we can say um, there's even been a situation where that, so that's coming from almost the student side, the parent side, there's even been situations that we've been seeing where parents are identifying trouble happening, literally like identifying like, my student is coming back to me and telling me that there's there's some frustrations going on with her. She feels like there's going to be a fight that happens and she's going to have to defend herself. How can I step in, right? As a parent, talk to the other parents, do anything like that. And schools have been like, no, we don't, we're not doing that, right? <laughs> like we're not, we're not talking to you, parent. We're not worried about this, this a student, your student who's a group leader or, you know, using terms that's like, criminalizing the student, even if it's lightly just like using stuff that's not actually like the student is a thug, but like it's giving, it's giving that, right? <laughs> um, and so even in those ways where we're like shunning parents and we're not allowing parents to come to the school and say, hey, something's been happening at home. How do we make sure that um, it doesn't manifest in this school, right? Um that's another way that a school to prison pipeline is able to function or is allowed to function in schools. Yeah. When, 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 uh, we, we started this, uh, like when our parents started investigating back in 2006, uh, the, the, you know, everybody was, was at least different orgs were on the, um, college, like, like readiness, like getting like, and parents were trying to figure out what, you know, what was causing the law, this large, uh, uh, number of what they was, you know, say was dropouts. And then so, so, uh, once parents started, uh, investigating and, and seeing the causes of, 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 um, and the reasons why there was this large, uh, number of dropouts, you know, through like a willful defiance and, uh, suspensions and expulsions. I, I think that for us, like, like that's where, you know, it was easier to track and see. Uh, the school to prison pipeline, especially what I'm trying to say, right? Now it's a little harder because we're, because they don't suspend students at that rate that, uh, at least in uh, LUSD, as they were doing, you know, you know, more than 10 years ago. Um, and, uh, but it's the practices, like what Joe was talking about, right? The things that they're doing that creates 
and that, that is harder to sometimes notice uh, for us because uh, it could be uh, a small little thing, but then it, it contributes to to a large uh, uh, a large thing that, that that causes it. And so it could be, you know, what um, my son is not interested right now in this topic that that's being discussed in the class. Right. And I'm trying to make sure that the teacher, and this is what some of like our, our parents are like, I'm trying to make sure that the parent, my, my teacher understands that my, you know, my son is not understand, you know, doesn't find, uh, interest in this topic. And, and yeah, we are working on it, but, uh, I want to work with you to, to make sure that, you know, he doesn't fall behind. And then, and so it's how the, also the teacher just takes on, you know, that, that challenge, which is very hard. Right. But at the same time, like it, it's part of that, like mutual, relationship with you know, we're trying to encourage uh schools and, and 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 our parents to to build you know because it can't be just a once one way thing uh but so if it's not addressed and then it becomes not interest that not interest then becomes some kind of behavioral issue and then it becomes uh an issue where it, it builds up to frustration not not only from the student but also the parent towards the teacher and then it becomes this reputed thing where the teacher now has a, a thing um, for for that parent because you know you know that parent's always calling them or complaining. Then that 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 creates not only the the, the the feeling of being left out or being pushed out, but also it creates that that, that separation between the teacher and, and that family, and uh, and that you know contributes you know that could contribute to some stuff that happens outside in the playground and all that, and then so it's. Like our parents are, you know, work towards like the monitoring aspect of it too, to and, and identifying like where do these things start? How can it, you know, how can they, you know, how can we intervene so that uh, it doesn't become something bigger? Uh, and that's that's the the harder uh, work about monitoring um, policies that schools push because most schools think that just because the policy is there and they could have a few meetings to discuss it that it's going to automatically address some of the things that happen. And it takes a little bit hard. It takes a lot of more work. Uh, and transparency also from the school to, to, to people. And they'll be like, you know what? Yeah, we don't have this. We do need some support. Um, we do need in community input. Um, and, uh, and yeah, we, we want to work with, with the community to, to address some of these issues. Yeah. I would say, um, so to the point around willful defiance and Shimon, I know that you guys did have a, a whole segment on that with Jordan, who, by the way, we both went to Howard University together. So I know Jordan. Hate you. <laughs> Shout out to Jordan. Um, but, uh, you know, for for those who didn't hear that segment, willful defiance as defined in the California Education Code is just like anything that a student does to willfully defy valid school authority, which what does that even mean, right? Like that could be, you know, like Edgar was saying like, okay, my kid just today is not interested. So maybe they put their head down, right? That's willful defiance. If I come to class and I'm not prepared with the right pencil and paper, that's willful defiance. If I wear my hat backwards, that's willful defiance. If I come to class late, you know, like it's whatever the valid school authority, y'all can't see my air quotes, but the valid school authority is, right, um, that they defy. And so what, what we were finding was that it was, 
it, it was these like subjective um, ways um, to really um, how uh, to target. I'm going to say target um, black and brown students, students with disabilities. Right. Um, and like, that's why we were seeing such an uptick with, uh, with suspensions and expulsions for that particular reason, you know, because of all of the community efforts around Wolf Defiance, we were able to get it, you know, banned for expulsions. Um, and, you know, most recently for K through eight, it does leave out high school students. So they can still be suspended for that. It was a, it was a long, hard road. It, it took five plus years of advocacy. Like it wasn't just like, oh, you guys should see the data shows, <laughs> you know, suspensions don't work. They don't actually support like kids making different decisions or better decisions. And then, right, we talk about the school to prison pipeline. You know, there were a lot, of, there was a lot of like pushback from teachers unions and like folks that felt like they should have the right to be able to like have, um, class management, right? Like they were talking about class management and like the ability to allow other students to learn. And just so you know that the willful defiance is actually that that law is sunsetting in 2025. And so there is going to be another push to like hopefully be able to get um, it codified into law where there is not the ability for anyone to be able to be expelled or suspended for willful defiance. But um, even just thinking about the other way that young people are criminalized, thinking about like the over surveillance of um, like students, right? So like in LAUSD, I don't know, Edgar, if you want to talk a little bit about how like up until a couple years ago, like there were metal detectors in like every high school, like they were able to use pepper spray and like, right. Like there's these like different touch points, um, including, right. Like, so in addition to like the, uh, the punitive, like laws, there were also like ways in which like probation officers were like roaming on campuses and, you know, they, they try to present themselves as friendly and as this like alternative for students. And they're like, oh, do you want to like join our voluntary probation program so that we can have more ability to survey your life? <laughs> and you've never had a court case, <laughs> but we just, we just want to help you. We're like restorative justice almost, right? Like it, don't you believe me? I'm friendly. I'm 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 Joe friendly. Cop, Officer you know? friendly. Officer friendly. You know, and it's like ridiculous. But like these are the things that are happening on our campuses that allow for right, like this increased opportunities and touch points for criminalization of our young people. In addition to these harsh practices, so I don't know, Edgar, if you want to. You guys had a whole campaign to get like metal detectors like eliminated on campuses, so. Well, that that was actually the the, the strategy center that uh, that that was pushing on, on that work, uh, but you know we worked together to to um to pass the the school climate bill of rights uh, in 2013, and our work really was more like where is direction around like what you, you were mentioning, like is the school taking um, like what you mentioned Nicole, as far as like where the funds were being used and how the the, the school police was incorporating themselves into now these these new positions that were coming in uh, and, and they were asking for training uh, around restorative justice. And, uh, you know, we were looking at the, the relationship between um, how they take some of the, the, the students, you know, trust and 
uh, how that trust was being broken uh, in certain situations or or outside or like we had a situation where a police officer uh, eventually became uh, a school police officer and that officer was using you know their their familiarity and knowledge of some some of the folks uh, outside you know into like into campus and then so that trust was already being broken uh, um, uh, and and uh, yeah they were you know criminalizing some of our our, our parents uh, sons and and um, that was just some of the examples of like why some of this training you know wasn't working and it was being used in the wrong way. Um, yeah. Yeah. And not to mention that LAUSD is like the second high. They have their own school police department and it's the second highest. Is it like 40? It was $45 million um, just to fund their own separate school police department. LA still wow. has its own police department, but right, like LA, so, you know, a lot of the efforts have been to defund, right? And so, like, through the efforts of a lot of community partners, you know, Cadre is a part of that effort, but the police free, um, kind of schools steering committee, which is like a collaboration of grassroots organizers, um, you know, they were able to get a bill, a school resolution passed last, was it 2020 or 2021? Um, and they were able to defund $25 million, which is huge, and to reinvest that into a Black student achievement program. And so, like, really, it's like, how do we reinvest this money to actually provide supports for our young people um, in ways that we know that cops just are not providing the supports that our community needs? I remember when Jordan was teaching me about willful defiance, you know, when I was learning about it. And there was a clip of a black student explaining that his teacher gave them the assignment that they had to speak or write about something that was positive about slavery. And the student was like, I'm not doing that. Willful defiance, suspension. Now he's got a record. He's criminalized. But the assignment was racist. It's a white supremacy power trip. I'm hoping we can talk a little more about that or some of the other campaigns to get into some of the specifics of how you organize, like what does some of the on-the-ground work look like. For folks checking out this podcast who are against the school-to-prison pipeline, who are for abolition, police-free schools, and wondering how to get involved, how to build power, how to get into the legal process to pass legislation, if we could get into some of that, it would be great. It looks like so many things. because. To, to a part of your question, how do people get involved in this work? Um, I think, you know, the best thing is not to recreate the will if it already exists, if something already exists, right? Sometimes it doesn't exist. So, you know, do your thing. But <laughs> um, if you can, right, search out some um, spaces where people are already having these conversations, already, you know, doing doing the work, Um Students, uh, which is where kind of my first mind goes to young people, like how can you change your own environment? Um, I first off know that you have the power, right? And even in those situations where you feel very stuck, like this person has, you know, higher ranking than me, right? This person is a teacher, this person is a principal, all these kind of things. Um, know that you have the power and there are more than likely enough students on campus feeling the same way as you so that you can make something shake, right? Um, and so that's kind of where my first mind goes to, right? That, that, um, 
it's important for us when we're talking, um, like I was saying earlier, when we're talking about these issues to not kind of overlook the students who are being directly affected by a lot of these things that we're, as adults, we can talk about like these policies in X, Y, and Z um, and help them understand how they can be in the mix to change those things, which that might look like being on a club in campus or on campus, right? That um, talks about approving and and disproving budgets or whatever it is, right? Um, it could be going all the way to the school district, maybe sometimes X, Y, and Z. So I think that that, that is um, some ways where this work can actually happen. Um, other than that, um, this question about like what does it actually look like to um, organize around these things, organize around getting police off campus, organizing around stopping these school-to-prison pipeline policies and stuff like that. It looks like a lot of um, talking. And when I say talking, I I mean this because um, narrative shift is important, right? And so shifting the narrative from like, um, we need police on our our student campuses because students are bad right (laughs) or like you know because that idea right we need right right they're dangerous (laughs) and so we need police to like corral these students together shifting it from that to like you know even some basic science like students are going through things in their bodies right like and then like moving from there to like okay you know how do we actually have students discuss what they're going through how do we do all those kind of like conversations have to happen before any policies get put into place who are you having those conversations with like who are you shifting the narrative with that's a good question um Mm -hmm. So, right, I'm like come from a youth organizer like line. Right. Um, And so I deal mostly with young people. And so my first mind is I'm first having those conversations with students because even some students are like, well, what other way is their safety? Like I've never known a school that doesn't have um, metal detectors. Like, right. So are you telling me they didn't have metal detectors back in the day? Like, what does that look like? You know, students may not know that. And so helping to like raise their consciousness around this issue and help them understand like, there's different ways of doing things. Which one works best for you? And asking them that, right? And then allowing them to say like, oh, okay, well, something, maybe a mixture of these things. Um, and that's uh, shifting the narrative. Even talking to parents. Hey, parents, remember back when you were growing up, right? What did that look like? Or what does safety now mean to you? What are you hoping um, your student will get out of school that maybe they're not seeing now or that you want more of right now? But Having those kind of conversations with students and parents, I think, are very important. And then once you start to get that, um, right, like the people power, right? And so you have these these families who are on, on your side, then going toward, you know, the next step. Maybe the school board is the next step, talking to the school. Or maybe you talk to a principal and say, hey, do you want to be courageous and be a model for the other schools in this district, Right. Stuff like that, just kind of helping each person in their own little space understand like why this might be a little bit more important than you're, you're thinking right now or my, why there there might be a way that we can kind of stretch your imagination to look at something that has not been highlighted in the past 10 years in schools. So, yeah, that's what I'm thinking. And I, and I hope I answered one of the questions, at least. <laughs> Definitely. 
Wait, Jewel, that race for me, and I'm I'm hoping maybe you and Edgar can talk to or like speak to it, but like as you're talking about how important narrative change is, like that's that's 50% of my work, right? Like probably of your work too, right? Like it's a huge part. And so I would say as, uh, or I would ask as like organizers that are organizing black and brown people, like what are some of the challenges that you guys have faced, right? Around negative change, narrative change, excuse me, around policing and safety. And especially in the wake, right? Of all of these, like, like all of this violence that's been happening around guns and like all the fear mongering <laughs> that's been happening and the opposition that we've received, even though we still know that our North Star is abolition. And we still know that we, we know for a fact that we do not think that police equals safety, just like maybe what are, like, what has been your strategy or like, how have you guys been able to like, kind of meet people where they are and, and support like moving them um, or not. I don't know. I'm curious. I don't want to put words in your mouth. <laughs> no, it, it, it's, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a lot of work. It's tough. Most definitely. And yes, uh, uh, most definitely it starts with a narrative shift. Um, it's um, probably like, well, yeah, like it's 50% of the work that we do um, for, for us. Um, it, it is uh, well for us. We, we we have we have some kind of structure in 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 the process of itself because we've been invested in this this for like you know twenty years already since um, our co-founder uh, Maisie Chen and Rosalind Hill. You know they started off with discussions. But let's just have conversation about what's going on and uh, educate ourselves around around this. And we've taken that formula and, and created into a whole academy now that we have. Uh, that runs uh, for the uh, the whole school year, and uh, where we develop not only our our um, empowerment uh, tools, but also our advocacy tools uh, to engage. And then, so for most parents, yeah, the the feeling of powerlessness also uh, heavy because just the question itself is, is heavy, right? Like, I want to see change. I want to see these these dramatic changes, and I know that's not going to happen. That's what most parents like. You know, we're talking about change, but that's not. I'm not going to see that. That's change that's probably going to happen years from now, and and that's kind of hard, um, you know, to take, especially when when we're asking folks, say, hey, you know what, we want to create change, but you're, you know, uh, uh, you're, you know, the systemic change that we're asking for, you might not see it, uh, you know, until a long time, uh, and and so we got to break it into pieces, like, well, well, we might not see this dramatic, like, dr- like, dr- uh, transform this transformative change, you know. Uh, 20 years from now, or it might take five years, whatever that might take, but I can't guarantee you that there's going to be some change this semester. And and we're taking steps. I, I, can, I can guarantee you that if we practice uh, some of our own uh, tools uh, to empower yourself, to create some goals, uh, to uh, work and develop some questions, empowering questions that you want to ask some of the decision makers, that we're going to see a, a, a slight change in how they respond to you and how you create power in that space. Right. And then uh, we will uh, uh, I can guarantee you that we will, at least by the end of the school year, accomplish some of the goals that you have that are academic and also personal goals, because, you know, we want to also talk about growth. And uh, and then in that process, we're going to engage you around how to uh, view this not only as a thing that you're engaged that that's about you, but also about all of us. And then, so this is where our our uh, 
transformation from the me to the we comes because everybody, you know, comes, you know what? I want to make these changes. I want to see this. I want this to happen for my child. And eventually, and this doesn't always happen here, right? But it takes, it takes, eventually that person says, you know what? We are making these changes. Uh, we are working towards uh, all children in our schools, you know? And, and so that's that transformation. And then, so it, it does take, um, you know, time is part of that narrative shift. You know, we, we do, you know, engage in political education. Uh, we talk about our own migration stories. And this is where uh, it's very important because uh, for uh, an organization that's working with black and brown parents, hearing migration, hearing where we come from, you know, what is our story, it's, it, 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 it's part of the humanizing process that it takes for, for us to connect with struggle, to connect with, um, uh, uh, issues that, that are impacting all of us, you know, in this current, you know, uh, location that we're at now, you know, so how do we get here? Right. And then, so, uh, it's, it's, uh, it's, it's part of that process. And then, and then leads to, you know, the further discussions, which is around police too. Um, you know, we started off with willful defiance, then it evolved to school, uh, uh, school, uh, school climate, uh, the school climate bill of rights and monitoring, uh, PBIS, school wide positive behavior support. Uh, and, um, before we even were able to talk about defunding the school police, we had to have a conversation like, are we in solidarity with zero suspension of black students? And that was a hard conversation because it had to like touch on the issues of like, well, uh, if they're getting in trouble, it must be because of something happening, right? It must be their parents and all that. So we had to have that conversation and, and, and hear each other. And, and hear parents that are actually being impacted, uh, and, 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 and humanize that. Uh, after that, then the discussion around safety, because all parents care about safety, like they, they, they care, but it's the, the discussion around reimagining school safety and it's something that we're talking with, um, the police free uh, LUSD, right? We're reimagining school safety. Uh, how can it be reinvested? And so, uh, so jumping from, from, uh, zero suspensions to, to uh, defund the school police, you know, uh, it did take layers of discussions to, again, humanize, because we know that parents feel different about the topic. And then so we're not trying to do what the school is already doing, which is going to put parents against parents, uh, students against students and, and all that, community against community. Uh, so if this needs to take longer for us to engage this discussion, then then we have to invest in that time uh, to, to develop it. And there's, and ultimately there's going to be parents, uh, that are not going to agree with it. And then they're going to, you know, I um, look elsewhere. But if they're invested in their own development and growth and, 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 and yes, it might feel weird. It might feel like, you know what? Why, why, why black students? Why not just all of us too? Cause you know, we're centered. We, we, we center, you know, uh, black voices, black parents, right? And that feeling again too is it, it requires a discussion around where's that's coming from. Uh, and again, humanizing the experience, humanizing, um, this discussion. And so it, it doesn't, you know, it's not a one meeting. Thing. <laughs> it's a, it's a few meeting thing that happens. It's, it's one-on-ones to discuss that. And, and, and that's a lot of investment too. You know, it, uh, not everybody is, is up for that too. Right. So, so I give props to all the, the, the parents and every community member that's, that's, that's hung on, hung, hung on, hung on <laughs> for uh, doing this work. Right. I also wanted to, like, as you're speaking, I'm thinking about 
you know, people look at California and think, oh, the girls are progressive over there, right? Like everyone is on the same page, right? <laughs> Let's all get going. And there's Hollywood and there's all these different San Francisco and stuff. And then there's like, boom, here's the Inland Empire. No, but um, mm-hmm. like, you know, I, I, I think it's important for us to talk about that we're a big state and, you know, different counties, especially they have different personalities and different like um even like political context to to deal with and like they're even different history and x y and z to deal with and so i'm listening to to you talk edgar and i'm like yes la right and then we're talking about la defunding this and putting money over here and these are big steps these are big goals that we have also right but like we're not there yet and there's there's steps and there's like different levels to this and so I'm also thinking about like, right, like we we started kind of this conversation um, before I even started with the COPE um, and we started discussing decreasing citations for students. Um, and that was our first step to think saying like, hey, maybe we can rethink what safety looks like for our students. Let's just decrease what citations we're giving, right? Then from there we move on and we're now talking about um, you know, local funding, local, what is it called? LCFS. Yes. Okay. Thank you. Formula. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) Um, and so we're talking about that and, and we're talking about, okay, how can we ensure that students, um, high needs students get what they need? Right. And we're kind of slowly moving this needle and slowly walking folks to, and now we're at the point where, you know, um, one of our students is in a, a police free schools fellowship and she's learning a lot about what that means. Right. We've yet to put it on blast and say, you know what I mean? Like, let's get the police out of here. Right. Because it's a delicate conversation that we've seen some other um, organizations and other districts had that fight. Right. And they 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 lost. But that loss still was a win in the right direction, right? And so, like, because they started that conversation, we're now able to push the needle a little further and a little further. And so, like, um, big dreams. I'm looking at Cadre and I'm like, exactly. We want to have those conversations. We want to have those conversations about, like, uh, why we're focusing, right, on on uplifting and centralizing Black students and Black voices, right? Um, we want to have those conversations about why it's important for us to move dollars from school police into actually let's fund something else that focuses on wellness for our students. We want to have those conversations. But again, I think just generally, I'm thinking it's it's important for us to remember when we're thinking about California, that there are different conversations that are happening in different spaces. Not everyone is on the same page, although we very much hope to be soon. You know, something I'm thinking about as you all are talking are the grassroots efforts and the work that go into that, the conversations you're having with students, with parents, with everyone you have these conversations with. And the police have millions of dollars on their side and the administration and teachers and the union, you know, like funding behind it. And then you have people power, but there's a lot that has to go into that. And I think about parents and students too. People are working, people are struggling. Times are tough. They've been tough for a while, but they've really, really been tough these last couple of years. 
how do parents, when do you meet with them? How does this even happen? Because some of that feels huge to me that you can even have those meetings because there is so much people are dealing with. Yeah. Go ahead, Edgar. Well, for, well, for us, it's um, we've tried to stay consistent, at least in the time frame of where our meetings are. And most of our meetings are in, in the evening. Uh, right now it's from 5.30 to 7.30. Um, and normally um, we're going to catch most of the parents that are working throughout the day that are coming in, you know, back home. And it's just some of our parents, you know, with, with the whole Zoom thing, it, it kind of opened up some windows because we could now have meetings, you know, on the go and for some parents and they don't have to come to our office. And so, yeah, some parents are driving back home. Uh, some parents are catching, you know, the meeting in the parking, you know, of the work, you know, and, and, and so that's kind of opened up the opportunities, but, uh, ultimately also it, it, it's, it's, um, it's based on just the availability of what they, what, what they're able. Uh, we do also, you know, engage in one-on-ones to, to, you know, fill in some of the areas that we need to talk about. So, uh, it, it's also, um, broken into for us is, is, is around two things. One is like the self piece. And the other is the advocacy. And then so self-peace really is the, 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 the bigger long-term because if a parent is still around discussing their issue, which is valid, right? But it's, it's just issues. And they're not making that connection to like how their advocacy and, uh, could impact other parents or model for the teacher how to do some things and not do some things. Like if they don't draw that connection, then, then we have to work to make sure that 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 parent understands just how powerful their voice uh, can be if they engage it and make these changes. The other piece is the practice. Like I try these, editor, and this is how I res- this is this is the response, right? This is what I and, and, and you know, this is what they said to me, um, and then so we got to work it out. And so we have to have to assess it whether the action was actually uh, helpful, if it helped move anything, if it helped move the needle or not, and then so. A lot of that too also is part of the, the engagement that happens during the time that they're available. And that's hard too. You know, I, I'm consistently texting folks, Hey, you know, when are you available this week? And, and I know that, you know, everyone's time is precious. So that it's not like I could meet with them every single week, but, uh, based on just their availability, you know, continue to move it. And, and it's, it's, yeah, it's, it's a lot of work. Um, uh, but they make it ultimately happen. And I think we do believe in, uh, like, Having self agency, so they can, you know, they can say no, you know, you know what, that's, and, and that's there's nothing wrong with that. There's, you know, and and so as organizers too, like, yeah, you know, they're gonna get the nose, but we gotta continue. And well, you know what, let's 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 move on and see if they could, you know, we could do it sometime another week, or maybe this parent's not ready to talk about these things because they're having, you know, other things that are impacting their life right now, and this is not the right time. So let's revisit this conversation some other time. Do you all go door to door too? Yeah. Uh, now, now we did like, um, uh, during the pandemic, what we did first was engage all our pool of lists of folks that we had and, and reassess those numbers and see if they were going to uh, be able to engage us through Zoom. We, we adopted to Zoom. We did all this, like all these steps to get folks into, um, you know, to learn how to use Zoom. Um, uh, and, and that was some trial and error. And then so we started doing outreach this, this summer, uh, again, uh, and, 
And uh, yeah, it, it was you know it was a learning experience too because you have to engage folks with whether they're on like the keep my you know keep your distance side of things or you know they're or they're okay and then and then just measure it that way. Uh, we also contemplated going back to the office having hybrids, but it depends too just because different parents have different capacities too, uh, and and you know so we're still waiting on it. But yeah, most definitely outreach is important. I was going to say, Jewel, I don't know if you wanted to talk about how you engage young people differently or the same. Um, it, it It's a struggle. I used to work. Yeah. yeah. Go ahead. <laughs> um, woo. The kids are all right. Um, <laughs> but yeah, they're doing a lot. They're going through a lot right now. Right. Like and the students we work with. Right. Like they're not. Oh, how can I get my community service time in so I can like put it on my on my resume, right? Resume. Students who are like, I'm actually working at Taco Bell and I have like all of these things that I'm doing at school and I'm stressed out because the homework is way too much and somebody in my family just got COVID. But yeah, I'll come to the meeting tonight. Like, right, um, these are students who got a lot going on. And so we're, sometimes it takes constantly us hitting them up and saying, hey, remember me? Um, hey, remember this thing? Blah, blah, blah. And then once they get in this space, right, they light up, they're passionate, they're they're ready to talk about it. Um, and so it's working really right from a human, <laughs> I want to say like human standpoint, like we know you're going through stuff, right? Like I'm not trying to pressure you. I just know this, you know, could be an outlet for some of the things that you're feeling, some of the frustrations that you're feeling. Um, can I pick you? Like, do you need me to pick you up? Right. Because transportation is not, you know, always guaranteed and you know so having those conversations and then especially texting um just checking in sometimes doing a little double tap on instagram just so they know hey i'm thinking about you know just kind of always engaging with students is helpful for them to feel like yeah i would like to go over there and and spend some of my time um discussing these things or deciding i want to do a public comment even though I'm nervous and, you know, all of these kind of things. It, it just helps if if you're in constant communication, um, not just about the work, but just about how they are. And then parents, I can I can say Miss um, Devana is, is the one who is um, a parent organizer at COPE. Right. It's between it's in in between their work times. So, right. Maybe they're doing um, taking a lunch. That's when she's talking to them. Right. Maybe it's um, good morning. How are you? Kind of text messages. Maybe it's um, after they get off of work. For instance, even right now, we're having our um, what we call our education subcommittee meeting tonight. And this is the first one that's in person in a long time or ever, I think. Um, and there are parents coming. There are 20 something parents who are deciding, like, after I get off of work, I'm actually going to drive over there and come hang out and let's discuss this. Um and that's a testament to those individual conversations, like you were talking about, Edgar, those one-on-ones um, and that relationship building that you're doing. It's also a testament to our our parents, our community, who's so passionate about this that they're like, no matter how tired I am, and yes, I got to cook dinner when I get back from this meeting, and yes, I got to pick up these kids, and I'm going to set aside time to um, do something that can help our community change positively. That's amazing. I would say that's also just the trust that the parents have in, in cope, right? Like in, in, in what you're all doing. And so, so that's the commitment that they share too. Yeah. Yeah. 
I think the support you're providing for parents and the commitment and organizing they are doing is phenomenal. It's huge. I want to talk with you about something before we start to wrap up. Nicole, with Willful Defiance, you mentioned it's K-8 right now that you were able to get rid of those suspensions, but not high school. And that's just as an example, and this question isn't specific to that, but for all of you, how do you decide what to push for and what not to push for? Jewel, you kind of mentioned this around police out of schools and certain places not being ready for that yet, you know? So how do you decide that? And then all of you care so deeply about this. So how do you reconcile that within yourself too? Because I think that's hard. So I just wanted to hear it from you all. Well, for us, we, 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 we like I mentioned, um, we only have one campaign. So that's the, for us, it's, it's the, the, the right to education campaign. And we've been working on this for the past 20 years. And so the only thing we do is just get more in depth like into into the, the, the campaign itself. Um, and, and it started with willful defiance, but then it became monitoring implementation. And and now we're transitioning into the same thing about monitoring implementation practice, positive implementation practices, but now incorporating police, right? The police presence. Like what are the situations? What are things that causes uh, school to call police? What are some of the, the things that are going in campus, in the classroom uh, that will cause someone uh, from school to call the police? And and that's the finding uh, for us. So so we know we're not there because with COVID, things change. We're still trying to figure out whether they allow parents in campus. Not all campuses do that, right? We're still trying to figure out uh, how far, you know, Parents got access to uh, uh, their, their teachers. Like, is it just online? Can it meet with them one on one? Can it go in the classroom? And then, so while we want to do this, like police monitoring, uh, we know that we're still trying to figure out the, the, the you know, just parents' access. To it. And so that, so sometimes the, you know, that kind of, you know, uh, informs just where we're at. Uh, in regards to like even discussion though, like we know we need more allies, we need more parents, you know, so, uh, in, in, in this discussion. So we have to create also, uh, opportunities so that parents develop, create community so that we can eventually have more parents monitoring, uh, schools. And then so, uh, we would like to have, you know, a, a bunch of, you know, parents, you know, going in, but we, right now we, we, we have, our, our, our small group of like 26 folks. Um, and then so, so that also informs just how, uh, how far, how, how hard, you know, we could go into, into our schools. And, and then also, uh, yeah, the, the, the conversation around school safety, uh, around the mass shootings too. Also, we, you know, we, we, we had that conversation, uh, and, and, and you know, it, it brought up feelings, but they also, it, it, at least for our parents, it also informed us that, hey, you know what? Uh, even though police were are, are there, especially with Uvalde, like, there was a big failure there. And then, so we have to continue to think about school safety in a different way. And uh, the narrative shifts are going to be there uh, from the school, telling us about where money should be invested, how many police we should get. Um, but this is how we feel about it. And then, so... We had that conversation with a group of parents, though, but we had to extend that and, and create the opportunity to all, for more parents to, to engage that. So that also informs just how far in depth we can go with that discussion. And so 
I guess to also just answer it, it, it it's just piece by piece. Uh, and we have to measure just where parents are, are at. Like, if we can't, if we want to be somewhere as organized, but we're not there yet, we can't force it to be there yet. Like, we have to be meet them where, where parents are at and where the discussion is at. Uh, and, uh, but create the opportunities for, for the discussion. Uh, and, and that might mean for us, um, engaging around where the, the difference is at, if there is a difference, or, uh, having one-on-ones around where that feeling is coming and, and respect it. Uh, cause ultimately, you know, we've been in, 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 in disagreements with them, um, especially with, amongst parents. But the question we ask is like, even if we disagree in this topic, can we be in solidarity with the parents? Uh, can we be in solidarity with those parents being act, uh, 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 impacted? And that's what led us also to being in solidarity with zero suspension, right? Even though my child is not being suspended, can I be in solidarity with this black student and this black parent, right? So um, that's also part of the development that we have to have. Yeah. Yeah, um, echoing what you said, and also it's talking to our our base, right? Whether that is students, parents, community members, um, faith leaders, congregations, talking to them first. Um, we just finished even like coming. I hate to say coming out of COVID because we're actually still in it, but like so, like. Um, in the fall last year and early this year, we finished up a listening session that we had um, with our base in so many different ways, surveys, um, one-on-ones, uh, uh, focus groups, all these kind of ways we listen to our community to hear like what is going on now that students are now moving back into schools, right? Distant learning is sort of being a thing of, of the past for a lot of these schools. Um, parents how are you dealing with these things right and so just listening to our community from there we were able to say okay this is what our community is really caring about right now this is top of the mind um and cope we have um five different issue areas that we work in but specifically in education we were able to hear a lot of things um from students and from parents and even from some people who work in the school districts and work in schools um and that is what has shaped us thinking about what a, a campaign might look like, right? Like um, from those conversations, we've then been able to move that into like, okay, if we decide we want to find a solution on this issue, um, what might that look like, right? And so moving moving people into this kind of like imagination sphere, um, but it starts with, with listening to our base. And then there might be things that come up, right, that are... Um, you know, the term like low hanging fruit. There are some things that maybe we can go ahead and, and go for right now that we know we're going to win. We know that's easy. And that will energize our base for something that's more long term. Right. Um, and, and say like, you know, we have these little small things that at least we're we're doing like, look, this took two months to do instead of two years. Right. And so you might highlight those things and then also forecast. OK, but within two years, this is where we want to be. So this is the work that we need to do. And sometimes that does look like, like I was talking about earlier, testing the climate and saying, we might lose this, but we're going to lose it forward, right? <laughs> we're going to fail forward on this thing so that somebody else can come. And, you know, the way that we've paved, they can start where we ended and, and pick it up, right? Um, and so 
those are those are kind of some ways that um, we we pick the issues, um, but we look at the what's really important to our our base, and then we also look at like what is the landscape, what's the political landscape, what are people talking about, what's the social landscape, right? Maybe something big has happened, right? Like what? How does that shape how people are thinking about it right now? And then you know we we have to take all of these things into context and then figure out. Um, is this something that our base wants to do for the long term, or is this something that they just are like, I want to get this off my chest right now? So yeah, those are some ways. Yeah, no, I totally echo what both of y'all said. Like, I think dip, what I heard both of you say um, was really around deep listening, right? Like, you have to listen to what the base is wanting, and then also I think what's important is having a north star, which I think all of us have and or have created, um, and are part of both local, regional, and statewide coalitions that have very similar. Um, North Star. So there's also like some alignment, aligning yourselves with like folks that, um, you, you know, you can talk about different strategies with, you can, um, think through like, okay, so this is happening in my landscape. What's happening in your landscape? Can we do some peer to peer learning? How do, you know, like, how did that work for y'all? Like, okay, let's see if this could work for our organization. Um, but, yeah, and I think also just to, you know, Jewel, you were talking about how um, sometimes it's like picking the low-hanging fruit and um, kind of using that to propel you to your North Star. Um, and sometimes you win it and sometimes you don't, right? And so, like, when I think about Willful Defiance, we lost a lot of years. We did not win. And just more recently, we lost with mandatory notifications, you know, SB 1273, which we didn't even really get to talk about as much. But, um, but right, like all of that teaches us how to, right, like come back the next time. And like, how do we galvanize and get the support that we need to like move that forward? So it's not always that we're picking and choosing. So like for, you know, willful defiance, right? Like right now you can't be expelled, you know, for willful defiance, but only K through eight. Like that was a carve out that we won. They didn't want to give us anything, right? But we had to fight years and years and years to get folks on our side, right? Like we're talking about this narrative shift, like changing the political will, like um, like all of that takes time. So it, it wasn't that we chose that. Like our, our idea is that like no kid would ever be suspended or expelled for something as silly as putting their head down because they're tired or they haven't eaten that day or don't have the supplies that they need for school, right? Like whatever you know, validly, you know, defying valid um, school authority. Um, and so, yeah, I think it takes like having short term goals, but always with the North Star in mind and and always centering and listening to those who are most impacted by this work. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I was going to say that that's why I appreciate like, because you know, we're all part of uh, DSC California, Dating and Schools California, mm-hmm. and part of our work is, is really to, uh, Move and build, right? And, and and so we're in that process. We're we're learning from each other. Uh, parents are learning. Students are learning from mothers, uh, and uh, and we're defining. You know, our local work. Uh, well, actually, our local work is informing the statewide work, right? And then so through practice, this is how we've learned how to do things. Like locally here, you know, it was through Bob's work, uh, the Black Organizing Projects work in Oakland. You know, and how they you know, defunded, you know, the open school police that we took on notes 
and are, you know, adapting and learning from, from their practices. And, and, you know, and so I think that that's the power too of just, uh, uh, you know, centering you know, our members and listening and also learning from each other. Yes. Plus one learning from each other. Yes. <laughs> what was the name of that statewide coalition? Oh, Dignity in Schools, California, BSC. Shout out. <laughs> so before we wrap up, I just want to make sure, is there anything you all want to add? Yeah. I mean, I mean, the, 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 the work is, 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 is heavy, um, especially for, for our members, but like, you know, Jules and Nicole has mentioned, like the passion builds up because they, there's, um, there's a trust in, 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 in the collective work that we're doing. Um, and, and, it, and it builds up from just organizing, building a relationship with folks. And I think that's some, one of the things that, that schools, institutions fail, uh, oftenly is, is building an actual, uh, re, a relationship with, 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 with people. Uh, listening, humanizing the experience and, and, and meeting folks where they're at. Uh, no matter how many times LUSD tries to implement their own, you know, shadow of what, you know, community is doing, they skip a, a step there because, uh, they don't think about the, the process in regards to like building relationships with folks. Uh, they just want that transaction that comes immediately. And, um, and so, uh, the, the investment that parents put, you know, in, into the work, you know, ultimately, you know, uh, ripples in, in the way they, how they model and share their experiences and their, um, knowledge to other parents and, and with the intent that that parent will also do the same thing eventually. And, uh, the, the change, you know, might not, like I mentioned earlier, it might not show up, you know, immediately, but, in the short term, uh, well, the, the change that we're looking for might not show immediately, but in the short term, you know, the, the small steps might. And, and that's part of what gives parents hope. Uh, that's part of what, uh, parents can measure and, and see and, and, and do and replicate again the following year, right? And hopefully, you know, like many of our parents, uh, after the kids graduate, they continue just to develop those and support those skills to other parents that that are doing it for the first time. And, you know, that's how we, you know, keep moving and chipping at it until, you know, we build a mass movement. Um, I wanted to speak on two things. So um, I think a question that was posed earlier was like, how do us as organizers or people, you know, doing this work, how do we sustain ourselves or something of the sort? Um, yeah, it's hard work, right? And so like, um, Right. It's, it's hard for our families, our students and, and the folks who are impacted, um, every day by these things. Sometimes organizers are also those people. Right. And so that's even, even harder, um, to think about. Um, I think it's important for us in the things that we do and in doing this work to remember that rest is key because we want to be here to, to, to make the change and to hopefully see that change. Right. Um, and rest in a way that sometimes feels um, uncomfortable. <laughs> rest in a way that's like, wait, don't I have something to do? I should be doing something, right? But no, like that kind of rest is, is necessary for this work um, and for balancing ourselves in this work. And then also imagination is key in whatever way you can 
you know, exercise that muscle of imagination, you should, because that's going to be key for us to actually figure out how we're going to change this world into something that we love. Um, We all love and it's all safe for all of us. And then I also wanted to just say to this, the question of um, movement lawyers, what is the role? I do want to touch on that because when I tell you it has been one of the things that is the heavy lifting, like we talked about, is that narrative shifting. And when you're able to work in partnership with some lawyers um, who understand your vision, who understand like those struggles that you're having, who want to work for a world that looks different than than what we're living in now, it's so helpful because you're able to get this information that is going to move the hearts and the minds and the um you know, the hearts and the minds of, of people who are doing this work, right? And then we're able to then take that and say, you have to listen to us because look at all this data we have, right? And so now all of a sudden community becomes a little more like, um, I guess, validated because we have like uh, movement lawyers who are standing by our side. And so I just want to say, that's an incredible thing that I have learned in organizing is to work side by side some some lawyers like Hall that are actually, you know, understanding what we need to be able to push the issue forward. Yeah. That's so funny, Joel, that you mentioned that because I was going to bring that up because we hadn't talked really about movement lawyers yet. And as one of the ones on the call and we're missing you, Ashley and Ruth. But, um, <laughs> I, you know, I, 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 it makes me smile to hear you say just how beautiful that partnership can be because I think oftentimes... Um, when we think about the law, right? Like it's, it can be this really oppressive, right? Like thing. Um, and lawyers can use it in a very oppressive way, but I think there is some, there is beauty, um, when you have the right people that are utilizing it and, and, um, really working alongside y'all. Really, I feel like we're working from behind y'all and just like supporting whatever work, you know, that you guys are doing, recognizing that the law is a tool, but it is not the only tool and that people power really is more impactful for like transformation. Um, and I think believing and understanding the wisdom and the expertise of community, of young people, of parents, of elders, right? Like, and centering that and the work is so key to the work that we as movement lawyers do. Like, we put aside, like, our privilege, like, so what? I went to law school, like, who cares, right? Because, like, the the expertise that, that community has, um, for their own experiences and the ways in which this work is impacting their lives is so much more important than criminal law or contracts or, you know, torts or whatever. Right. And so I just wanted to say, like, I find it such a privilege and I'm so grateful to be able to do this work um, alongside y'all. And I know I'm the newest member, but I'm just so grateful to do this work with y'all and to continue to learn from y'all. And I think one of the, the the best things or the the most impactful things for me that I learned from y'all is just like hope. <laughs> like the way that y'all just keep going. Like there's not as much hope in the law, right? But like to just see y'all continue to get up, it don't matter what 
pandemic, what, you know, mass shooting, what, you know, the president says or passes, like the fact that y'all just keep getting up day after day and doing this work and talking to families and talking to young people. Um, it's such a joy and I learned so much from y'all. So I just want to say thank y'all. Um, it's such a pleasure. Likewise. Thank you. Yeah. That was beautiful. That was beautiful. I just want to thank you all for coming on the podcast, sharing your experience, and doing the work. Yeah, thank you. Thank, thank you. Yeah. Yes. yes. Most definitely. There probably have to be part two, three, and four. But yes, okay. we're excited <laughs> for this initial <laughs> really conversation. Dig, dig deep on it, then yeah, it's going to have to be some parts to it. Let's do it. Yep. Thank you for listening to Doing the Work. Frontline Stories of Social Change. I hope you enjoyed the podcast. Please follow on Twitter and leave positive reviews on iTunes. If you're interested in being a guest or know someone who's doing great work, please get in touch. And thank you for doing real work to make this world a better place. Thank you.